You are listening to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined as always by Jason Daphnis, producer and co-host. How are you, Jason? Matt, I am feeling I'm feeling excited, I'm feeling uh, magnanimous, and I'm feeling determined wow. to make another great episode of Crossfade with you. You yeah. see, I, those words are not chosen randomly. Carpe diem. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited because we have a great guest and two really good albums. I'm very excited for you, uh, everyone to hear this. Uh, but we are joined today by Erin Margaret Day. Uh, she's a writer, um, and she does a lot of stuff with the music and the scene. Uh, you can find her on comeawaywithemd.com. Erin, welcome to the show. Hello. It's great to be here. Yeah, so thanks so much uh, for doing this. I, uh, I think we followed each other on Twitter for a while, but I was... I thought of you recently because I read a thing that you did on Bandcamp about a cult Cleveland artist that goes by uh, My Dad is Dead, uh, which I really love that piece. Uh, And you have a a lot of great writing on Bandcamp and other places, which you have a link tree on your site. Uh, So I I know you also have a a kind of a cool project you've been doing uh, called the Seasonal Mixtape Series. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. um, So I sort of got tired of like – using streaming services to share music and connect with people. And so I went back to making mixtapes and it just sort of naturally evolved that I started making um, tapes for people again. Like I did when I was, you know, young and like first started really caring about this shit. Um, uh, But I wanted uh, there to be a way for me to listen to my own mixtapes after I send them to other people and also share them with people because part of the project is really like creating it as a, a way of documenting my own life, like each season of my life as it progresses. Um, Cause I really like to revisit these things. Um, and I like the ability to share them with more than just the person that I make the hard copy tape for. So uh, yeah, so I've developed this over the past like year, I guess, where we just started year two of this series, uh, and I just made a new page for my website where I kind of document the whole thing, so people that are interested can check it out there. That's cool, and people can kind of like order tapes, or? No, I'm not actually like, I mean, maybe that's something I should get into, actually, is just like dubbing them. What I've been doing is... I make a tape for one person so they get the hard copy with like cool mixtape art and whatnot. Um, just like the old school making a tape for someone situation. Yeah, that's um, great. But then I digitize them with my friend Victor, who's an audio engineer, and he masters them. And then I publish on my website um, the files and kind of like a piece of writing about what that season of my life was about and making the tape and kind of what it represents. So it kind of exists as a document, you know, like I stopped like really keeping a journal basically um, like around my mid twenties. And this is, I feel has become a more useful way of documenting each season of my life and making it public in a certain way. I love that idea. That's really cool. Um, so let's, uh, let's get down to your pick. This, uh, Number one, I, I did not know this album. I loved this album a lot. And it kind of filled Yay. me with a, a little bit of regret because they were definitely one of those bands I'd heard and read about a little bit. I had friends that liked them. And, you know, sometimes I, for whatever reason, something will just sort of escape, escape me at the time. And now I'm kind of, you know, 
wishing that I would have gone to like, I'm assuming numerous shows that I could have gone to, uh, to see, uh, Electra Lane, uh, the band and their album Axis. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your relationship with this record and why you chose it and what, what you like about it. Um, well, I, I feel like I kind of missed the boat on Electra Lane until a little bit later. I feel like it was more in like 2009 or 2010 that I really got into Electra Lane. And at the time that I got into them, um, I really resonated more with, um, I guess more accessible albums that they made, like the power out and no shouts, no calls. I mean, they're always like pretty weird and experimental, but um, those albums were definitely more, more vocal uh, and just a little bit poppier, definitely less challenging than Axe's was. Um, And so I feel like when I first started listening to Axe's, I want to say it was like 2011. I really like was starting to dig into it, but like after the first like three songs, uh, I just feel like the music, when it gets into like the really intense, very long instrumental section of the album, I just didn't at that time have the attention span that it requires. And I really think it's because I hadn't gotten into Krautrock at that point in my life, like at all. Yeah. Um, And it really like has like this deep, you know, intense, uh, (laughs) the the music is very intensely emotional without being vocal. And so in addition to requiring a great attention span, it also requires you to have a great emotional span. Um, It it actually like reminds me a lot of like, like the first Krautrock record, that I got into was like Tagomago by Can. Yep, yep. And uh, I had to be on acid to listen to that record. <laughs> like when the first time my friend tried to play that record for me, yeah. that first song was like insurmountable. <laughs> wow. I mean, in, in, in fairness, they, you know, they were probably on acid when they made the album too. So, you know. Yeah. Um. But I couldn't understand it not on acid, like, at all. That first song, like, it it just sounded really, like, it reminded me a lot of, like, classic rock, which at the time I was, like, very, uh, I don't know, extremely not interested in. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And so, uh, and it's really weird that it reminded me of classic rock since, like, the whole idea of kraut rock is kind of like taking rock and like removing it from America and from that kind of classic tradition of rock music. Um, (laughs) But, um, but yeah. uh, So I feel like that's a big thing that like a lot of people that I've talked to haven't really gotten into this record yet. And I think that's because it's really challenging in the way that, that Tagomago was for yeah, me the first yeah. time I listened to it. Um yeah, we should listen to um well it's the second song but the first kind of real song it's called Bells and um this I think I had like in my notes I had Noi, a great kraut rock band and Stereo Lab actually who is, you know, English but um those were in my notes as well. So I definitely I picked up on that and I think this is a, you know, a great song and a, a good way to kind of kick it off. So let's hear Bells. Yeah, 
I could listen to stuff all day. They, you know, it's not as vocal oriented, but I think they have great vocals on this and, and good harmonies at, at points. Yeah. But yeah, this definitely reminds me of like Hallow Gallo by Noi. Um, Absolutely. That was something I, remember, I discovered. Oh, sorry. No, no. <laughs> I just remember they reissued those on CDs in like in the early 2000s. It had like a big blurb from Tom York from Radiohead saying this was like the greatest band of all time and so I mean, that's like why I bought it I'll never be able to uh, like disassociate Hologalo from the time that I saw Rod Blagojevich jogging down the street to that song <laughs> wow there's a <laughs> I forgot about that guy he's the guy with the wig right I went to jail <laughs> well <laughs> I saw him shortly after Donald Trump uh, let him out of prison. He lives in the neighborhood in Chicago where I walk dogs uh, for a living, uh, my main living. And so so he has regular hair now. It's regular old guy hair. Okay. But like watching this old ex-con try to run to Hologalo was very poetic to me. I think that Krautrock is great music for, for, you know, exercise and for yeah. extreme circumstances. Yeah, it's very, uh, you know, like the little <laughs> engine that could kind of music, you know, German uh, efficiency or whatever. Uh, there is, you know, uh, a Kraftwerk record called Tour de France, you know, it's, yep. it's endurance music. It's very yeah. much endurance music. <laughs> yes, I think they're coming up to a part I... I love here. It's like, Jason, you skip ahead to 245, or we're maybe close already. We're pretty close to that. Okay. We're about 235. This is just like, to me, one of the great tricks of rock music that always works, and it's always worked, is, um, I think they're going to go into this piano part. The piano playing on this record is just fucking insane. It's great. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Like, this one, like, that insistent, like, notes on the piano and it's a high note like you know it worked for the Stooges it worked for like Jerry Lee Lewis it works here I love always I think that's never I'm thing. the biggest supporter of more more piano and rock music I think that like the piano and the organ always need to be in rock music more yeah definitely I had this moment like a few years ago where I realized that like a bunch of bands that were like pretty popular in the aughts I, like, decided that the reason they were as popular as they were is because they had, like, moogs or, like, piano keys of some kind. Like, Murder City Devils was one, and, like, Wolf Parade. It's like, yeah, that was different. That set you apart to, like, have that. I forgot about Wolf Parade. I saw them a lot. They were good. Very Um, good. uh, Well, let's, uh, we just... In the interest of keeping things moving, um, did you have, like, you know, what what do you want to hear in terms of, I have a few picks, but um, let's, uh, 
Well, I wanted to say that something that's interesting about the beginning of this record is when it starts with the one, two, three lots is the short kind of like opening of space. And then when bells starts, it's like this really reflective kind of song, you know, like coming out of a dark place to a brighter one. And then by the end of that song, we're like absolutely soaring with like all of the insane piano stuff that we were just talking about. But it opens up the space that they're definitely carving out of, like, communicating the the highs and lows of life. Um, I don't know. I love Two for Joy. I would love to talk yeah. about Two for Joy. Yeah, and that kind of, uh, maybe a little bit before two minutes, Jason, it kind of has a little, like, a intro, and then it kind of kicks in. Did I pop into the wrong place? Uh, where are you? Just before two. I'll jump back. Yeah, we'll fix this in editing. <laughs> or maybe not. People tend to like this. They feel like it's a needle dropping podcast. Can you believe that? <laughs> sure, sure. They think like it's like me listening to music with your friends. I always drop the needle incorrectly, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it more real. They have such good transitions on this album, like between parts. It's always really like. I feel like it's an album that's about transitions and about transits. That was a big thing I thought about a lot while listening to it. That it's about like all of the transit. Yeah. It's about all of the transits of life. Like, it's, like these early songs. I mean, Two for Joy to me is obviously about the decision to be brave and to chase joy and desire, even though it can often result in pain eventually. Um, But like Bells has this other, you know, kind of joy and connectivity that seems to be more specific to like camaraderie or fellowship. The idea of someone helping you through like while thoughts are troubling you. Um, And so I feel like in these like vocal segment, these vocal songs before they slip into this really intensely long instrumental trajectory, um, they're really like setting the tone of like connectivity and like ways that humans engage with and like elevate each other. Um, and then, then we go to some really dark <laughs> places and yeah. in, in the instrumental sections of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this song is like it's very joyful. Um, Jason, why don't you go to like four fifty? Because then it kind of mo- almost like starts to almost reference like some Beach Boys kind of like sixties garage rock kind of stuff that I really love as well. But yeah, this is just soaring. I mean, that's like the best word I can think of for this song. When I told my um, very good bassist and friend David Menestris that I was going to be talking about this on the podcast, this record. He responded with like a gif of like a woman in like pilot gear and it was not Amelia Earhart but because he did that it made me realize that Amelia Earhart is very integral to how I understand this record now. It is a record that's about flying and soaring and the adventure of life and being brave Uh, and it's definitely true that you know a big part of that is is tragedy and is suffering, you know? Yeah, that's... 
yeah, I think that's part of what makes it like really powerful. And, and they just, that uplift they can get is really uh, amazing. Um, I guess uh, I wanted to hear, um, you, you, you mentioned the use of piano. Uh, there's some amazing piano playing and very, it never feels cliche, um, kind of like rock piano. Uh, but if not, if not now, when I think has uh, some really uh, great um piano playing it almost reminds me of some it was a little charlie brown kind of vince garaldi kind of energy to it um mm-hmm. but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I i really love this one a lot yeah, yeah this I is think, one of my favorites on the record too i think that uh charlie brown uh connection is is there i, th- I it definitely for me is like carving out a space of possibility risk and optimism which is primarily associated i think with childhood you know yeah well, Charlie Brown, he's always going to kick the ball. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> but it never happens. But he still tries, you know. All right. Here's If Not Now, When. Also, this rhythm section rules. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for saying that because one of the things that it's very important for me to not forget to say is that in my research on this record, I discovered that... In 2004, the Washington Post referred to the Electrolane rhythm section as being quote unquote serviceable, and Ooh. that in 2005, Electrolane made axes. Wow. I'd say way more than serviceable, but. Uh, they were know, like, but- uh, they called us adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I. I mean, I understand why stuff like that happens because I think a lot of writers, in my opinion, sort of value the wrong things about drums. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's it's not a showy thing or it's, you know, there's always sort of that Keith Moon kind of like John Bonham thing that like, you know, whereas like this, I would I would think more closely like a James Brown band or something where they're just like, you know, totally defining this groove. But like through yeah, or like Klaus Dinger is definitely one of the biggest inspirations of Emma Gaze, and that's really palpable and yes, in yeah. their music. Um, but yeah, like I'm glad that we're focusing on both Electrolane and Eraserada because the aughts was filled like jam packed with bands of non cis men who had incredible rhythm sections. And they yes, inspired yeah. me to be a drummer. Like, they really, really did. Um, people like Emma Gaze from Electra Lane, Lillian Maring and Grass Widow, uh, Explode Into Colors, Lisa Ann Schoenberg and Heather Treadway from that band. I mean, there was just a ton. Yeah. no, it was, And yeah. Emma Gaze was definitely, like, primary among them. That I was, like, listening to Electra Lane, and I was like, I want to play the drums. No, I mean it's yeah. I, like I, I love the playing. It's just, it's just right where it needs to be, and it's not, it's not trying to do too much or like sort of. That's the kind of drum section I, I prefer. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's just like they, I feel like they're very in sync with each other. The, the bassist and the, um, the drums. Absolutely, and I mean, I think too that part of what you were talking about is there's this privileging of like really intense like technical drumming. In, in discourse around percussion. And to me, one of the things that often makes people who are not assigned male at birth better at percussion is is that they listen. 
Yeah, yeah. You know? No, I, they don't yeah, this... overpower songs. They play what they need to play, you know? Yeah, and this band in general just feels very, like, everyone's very in sync. Um, the other thing that I was kind of thinking about, like, with this song and, and some of the other longer ones, is that they sort of... That's my dog. Um, they, uh... The way they construct songs, I, I started to think about it not in, like, rock band terms, but I think they... It, some of it reminds me of, like, uh, dance music. Like... It's sort of like this layering of elements of a beat on top of each other and sort of transitioning between kind of like parts as opposed to this sort of like, you know, traditional, you know, verse, chorus, verse kind of songwriting. Um, I'm really yeah. bummed. Sorry. No go, ahead. no, go ahead. I'm really bummed because I actually tried to talk to someone from Electra Lane about like making this record because I've had a lot of questions for a long time about how this record was made. Um, and I heard back from Verity Sussman like this morning, but she emailed me at like three in the morning because that was a sensible time to email someone in the UK. Um, and then I emailed her back when I woke up, but I haven't heard about it. But oh, cool. I hope that works out. This whole, this whole record was recorded mostly in one take with minimal overdubs. Um, yeah. Well, they and I'm really curious about that. Yeah. And that's also, by the way, very importantly, a huge part of why I live here in Chicago and specifically in the Steve Albini part of Chicago is because yeah. <laughs> I insist upon living in a place of sonic majesty. Yeah. I mean, electrical audio, <laughs> it's, it's a legendary studio. Well, um, I used to live really close to electrical audio, but now I live... In Irving Park, which is the neighborhood that built electrical audio, which is also very important. But yeah, I definitely, so many of my favorite records have been recorded in electrical audio. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, he's great. I mean, if you just want to record a band in this natural state, I think he's the best. Um, let's, let's, uh, what else, uh, I, I kind of wanted to hear Eight Steps. Um, I thought that was a cool kind of thing. Uh, anything else you uh, wanted to kind of touch on? Yeah, I have a note about Eight Steps, too. Yeah, let's do All it. All right, let's pop into it, and we can get into that. The timestamp I have for Eight Steps is at around 37 seconds. Okay. <laughs> My note says, now we are very hectic and definitely in Europe. <laughs> it has kind of a French uh, cafe kind of thing to it. It's, yeah. Like to me, it totally sounds super cinematic, like a hectic street montage in a French film. But like, <laughs> All right. but, but like, like world, like between the world wars or something. Like we're going to a place. Ah. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Yeah, I love this because it just took me by surprise. The whole feel of this was so different for the album. So much movement. Yes. Yeah, definitely. 
And to me, it really, like, like later on in the record, they cover the partisan. So, like, this is the part of the record where I start to think about, you know, connections to, like, war and, uh, like, people having to flee and, like, move quickly to different places. Uh, connections between people dissipating, having to go into the shadows. Yes, yeah. Um, that I'm glad you mentioned that. We, oh, I love this. They do such good breakdowns on this album. That's another thing I wanted to talk to someone from Electra Lane about because a lot of the record feels like there, there's no way that they could, in my mind, there's no way they could record this mostly in one take with minimal overdubbing without having it be like extremely well thought out and rehearsed. But also the the build up and breakdown sections have like really palpable improvisational energy, you know? So that was something I wanted to talk to them about because it, it seems like there is an improvisational aspect to this. Yeah. Um you you mentioned the partisan. I, I'd like to hear that because uh this one really uh, let, let's go to the parts. I think it takes a little bit to get to the song part, but uh, this was funny because I, I I usually try to like the first couple times I listen to a album for the show, I just sort of like throw it on. Uh, you know, if I'm like doing dishes or you know working from home or whatever, just kind of like not really listening in depth, just to kind of get like the vibe of it. And it took me a second, and I was like, "What is that?" And then I, I realized this was a cover of the Partisan. Uh, which is most known uh, by Leonard Cohen. Uh, his he has an amazing version of this song, but it's a World War II era French Resistance uh, folk song, and uh, I, I was just blown away by the choice of cover and and how well it translated to kind of more frantic, kind of like punk almost feel. Yeah, okay. And it kind of takes you a second to figure out that it is what it is, which to me is like the mark of a good cover too. Yeah, this I, I love this song. This, I love this version of it. You know, it kind of reminds me of like a adverts or almost late seventies punk bands in England. Uh, but I had a real phase with this song, the Leonard Cohen version. Where I just listened to it over and over. Um, but yeah, just inspired cover, and I think inspired choice. Yeah. There's a there's a whole theme I feel like on this record a very strong theme of departures and arrivals and kind of like moody fogscapes. Um, a lot of the time when I choose to listen to this record with other people, it's when I'm getting dropped off to get on a train across the country or most recently seeing my best friend off on a flight back to New York. Um, it just to me, this whole record is really about departures and arrivals. Um, and I feel like, you know, this cover being here um, lends itself to that theme uh, of people having to disappear. Um, 
and not being able to come out until it's safe, yeah. essentially. But and I mean, um, in, in this, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but in this okay. case, very, no, just very literally. I mean, this literally was yeah. a song of the French Resistance. So you know, totally. if there was sort of a implicit themes of that this this song is like it's very explicit it's about you know totally the experience like there's, there's other parts of this record that definitely feel like they're about you know the beginning of a love relationship or the end of a love relationship and it's just part of like how i feel like this record really seeks to like take you on a journey through all of the transits of life and and this particular cover they make it like very political you know yeah um what else i mean there's uh keep losing hearts good um but that's like we... when we like finally hear vocals again after like a really yeah. long really long challenging instrumental section wait but before we do i keep losing heart we should talk about um gone dark or yeah gone darker because yeah, that that they build this whole epic jam around like a recording of trains is what it sounds hmm. like, yeah, uh, and that's <laughs> that's a big part of this too. That's this comes before the partisan, so now it's a little bit out of order, but I think no, that's, that's okay. a really important part of that like intense instrumental section of this, and also a good example of how improvisational the buildups and breakdowns on this record feel. Um, 618 on Gone Darker is what I have timestamped to talk about this. So like there was this is like a long song and there was this whole build up around these train sounds before this. But like this is like these build ups and breakdowns right here with just like little plucks and like the percussion coming back in feels very improvisational to me. And that was the end of Gone Darker. <laughs> Wasn't a very good timestamp. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Did we hit, did we hit what you wanted to hear? I guess that was where then I thought is. of that. You know, the improvisationalness feeling yeah, of no, that's... like how those things build up and break up. But there's a huge build up <laughs> sure, around sure. that train sound that comes before that. Do you want to go to I Keep Losing Heart? Yeah, I, I really like. I thought that was another. Uh, just something I wasn't expecting from the album once again, which I, I, uh, a little more folky. Uh, and I guess I, I appreciate their ability to sort of take in different musical kind of textures and, and styles, but it still feels very Electrolane, uh, which yeah. I, I was impressed by. So I, I, this was just another thing where I just heard a sound. And I was like, wow, that's not a sound I expected to hear on this record. Specifically banjo. Yeah. Well, it's really shocking because it comes after that like really long, really intense instrumental emotional roller coaster. So it kind of like catches you off guard. There is something about making a very maudlin chord progression with a banjo that just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's because my mom 
like she her family comes from the Appalachians or something, but something about it tugs at like my soul to hear that sound. Oh, yeah. Right? It's it's you know, old old weird America. Yeah, definitely. The freakiest part of the world. <laughs> I don't know if this is like a reed organ or something. Yeah, I was trying to pin it down too. Do you have any there's insights, always, Aaron, into what they're playing in the back? There's always so many things I don't understand on every Electra Lane record, and that might be my favorite thing <laughs> about them as a band. Like, where do they get this idea? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even on like other records that are way less challenging than this one, like on the Power Out, like the Valleys, it's just like this vast, like weird song that's just like. You're doing like choral music now. <laughs> That's the other thing about this track is that we eventually get vocals, but they're like very tight harmony, sort yeah. of sustained note. Yeah. It's not like catchy melodies and stuff. It's like an announcement. It's like a fanfare. Yeah. Yeah, the vocals don't sound the way they sounded at the beginning of the record. For sure. It also, this song drives home to me like, how I came to dislike the sound of banjo in rock and pop is because of like uh, mainstream hits that like just used it as another lead where they didn't like leverage anything about the instrument to make it sound a particular way. It was just like, oh, this cool sounds this guitar riff sounds I mean, like, cool on banjo. Mumford Let's do it that way. Stuff like that from that era. Yeah, I mean, even they like they have a banjo player and they sort of like figure it out. I'm thinking of that one song. It's like a hey ho stomp song. It's like boodle do 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 do. I don't know. I forget man. what I hated the that fuck stuff. that song is, but I hear it at every JC Penny I ever go to. <laughs> this is also like the song where they actually mention axes. <laughs> but I I personally maintain the position that this album is be called it's called Axes because the Washington Post said their rhythm section was serviceable. And Electrolane had an act to grind. Aha. Uh-huh. I think you've cracked the code. <laughs> this, I love this part too because it reminds me of like 70s like movies or like TV shows kind of. Yeah. Totally. Is that this a muted like trumpet? The taxi theme, theme from Taxi or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very cinematic record to me. It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's exhilarating and cinematic, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well,. Yeah, this is just great. This is, like I said, Aaron, this is a great record. Uh, we should probably start switching gears here to keep everything on schedule. But uh, thanks for picking this. This is like, I've of all the things I, that were new to me as a result of this podcast, this is definitely up there uh, with with my favorite. So appreciate the pick. And like I said, I'm sort of kicking myself for not having seen them when I, I'm sure I had multiple chances with them coming through Minneapolis. I, I'm sure I could have seen them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's uh, let's switch gears to my pick, which sort of from a similar era, um, a different band. I feel band. like you were like really like loving on me with this pick. I don't well, know if that's true, <laughs> I, but you know I feel what, very very seen and heard with this pick. Well, I'm glad it, you know. So <laughs> that's good. At it's, that. an, it's an interesting dynamic with the the, the blind picks. So you know you. We always have the guest, you know, emails their pick to Jason, and I email my pick. So we don't we're we don't know what each other has chosen. Um, this actually was based on me uh, recently going through like some boxes and kind of kind of cut down on my storage, and I actually found my my old sixty gigabyte iPod, and it 
it actually miraculously worked. I powered it up and I was just sort of seeing all this stuff from kind of the early 2000s. I was like, man, I love that record. I love that record. And so I actually started listening to this because it was like, it's on my iPod <laughs> that still worked. So, um, but yeah, this album is just like, I mean, this is rips. This album is just. It totally rips. Well, I, that's really funny. I'm glad it was your own serendipity. Cause I like the idea of like music being its own force that like leads us where we need to go and not paying so much attention to like the hype or what other people are doing, but like being on your own journey of listening. And that's definitely my MO. Um, I'm horrible at like paying attention to my promos and stuff as a music journalist. I'm always just like doing whatever's on my mind. (laughs) But uh, I totally thought that you wanted to talk about this because you saw my Twitter poll where I couldn't decide between red medicine by Fugazi and accents Mm -hmm. by Electra Lane. Because I really wanted to write about red medicine or talk about red medicine, but I also really wanted to highlight like women artists. And to me, Eraser at his nightlife is like absolutely the badass lady version of Red Medicine yeah. by Fugazi. No, yeah. I mean, I, I, and I was like, yeah. why didn't I think of that? I should have thought of that. I mean, you know. Not everybody as, has as Matt's a, golden touch, you know. I mean, you know, as a as sort of a, you know, aging indie rock guy, you don't have to sell me on Fugazi. I'm, I'm definitely on board. Um, <laughs> Like that was, you know, one of my big bands. I just thought that maybe I need to show up and advocate for Red Medicine because I've definitely talked to some like old seasoned rockheads who have for some reason never listened to anything put out by Discord between like 96 and 2005. And I'm not sure why. That's wild. (laughs) Um, Well, let's let's listen to let's just go into the first song in this cruising. Um, I mean, this the. They pretty much state their case, like what they're about musically, I think, right from the get go. So, and this is a great song. Drumming, unbelievable All on this song. My ride. friends in a low rider. Yeah, it's kind of like low rider, yeah. And like mutant low rider. <laughs> <laughs> We covered one Deerhoof album on this podcast once upon a time. I think it was Apple O. Yes. Uh, and the noisier parts of this record remind me of, of that a little bit. Am I insane? No. You're, they're actually both from kind of the San Francisco, Oakland scene of, you know, these guys would have been a little newer than Deerhoof, but they, yeah, they're definitely mm-hmm. from the same kind of scene for sure. I'm getting better at this. The, the dynamic here, Aaron, is that I'm a young whippersnapper who knows nothing but uh, the young pop and and the Doobie Brothers, uh, and Matt just has Jeez. this base knowledge of all music that's ever been recorded or written, so that's what we're trying to play out here. I'm a huge fan of the idea that like, being a novice can sometimes make your insights better than if you knew a lot. Yeah, yes, totally. thank you, champion <laughs> of the underdog, Aaron. Like, I've started to like write a lot about experimental music, and I feel like I'm really successful at it because I don't actually know a lot about experimental music, and so I write about it in a way that's really ex- like accessible for people who don't already listen to it. You know? Yeah, excellent. Totally. I can see that. I always wondered if this was a reference to uh, the movie Cruising. Um, yeah. 
I don't actually thought. know the movie Cruising. Uh, Ooh, I also, I also okay. like, really am not familiar with Deerhoof. So we're kind of in the same boat there. Oh, I think you would. I mean, Ooh. I think you would like. If you don't love Deerhoof, I'd be super surprised. I was going to say, I it's think I've got a podcast episode for you, Aaron. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. That, yeah. I remember people listening to Deer Hook back in the day. It's just one of those things that it's not like I intended to not listen to it. I just never did, and that happens to me all the time because I'm always mm-hmm. obsessed with whatever is on my mind. You know, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, I like this label. I'm gonna listen to every band on this label. Yeah, yeah. Like plenty of labels I love. I'm still discovering bands from the '90s, like this year. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. Aaron, what? What? Uh. What do you want to hear off this? Uh. Obviously. You're oh, I definitely want to hear Hotel Suicide and talk about that Fugazi guitar attack we have going on at fifty seconds. Yeah, I listened to this this morning, and my daughter. I was taking her to school, and she's like, "Dad, this is a really uplifting song," so she was not digging it. But <laughs> your daughter knows sarcasm that well already. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. She has to hear a lot of weird crap that I listen to. So Related to cruising, though, I do want to say this is one of the songs on the record that is a little bit confusing to me. I think that Eraserata are kind of they're like pretty surreal as a band. So mm-hmm. I don't always like feel that I can really determine what they actually mean. By their yeah. lyrics, uh, sometimes they're very direct, and other times it's like, hmm, <laughs> they're leaving yeah, a yeah. lot yeah. kind of confusing, especially on this record, in which I feel like they're using like the queer sex tradition of cruising to also be a metaphor for the way that like the queer community specifically is being rendered like homeless and uncertain about the future. Yeah, and this, oh, wow. I, I love that read. Um, yeah. You know, I just want to, for the record, I brought up the movie Cruising. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to endorse the movie Cruising. Uh, or, oh, I will. Uh, yeah, it's it's problematic. It's Fried, William Friedkin and uh, Pacino, and it's uh, it's something. Um, but, you know, anyway, let's go on to Hotel Suicide. I, I just want to throw that wait, in Wait, hold on. One more thing. This, I want to make sure I say this. I do think one thing that I've surmised from the song cruising that I think is important um, because it's not one of my favorite songs on this record, but I do think that it sets the stage for an examination of America that is taking place in a nightclub, but under like black light so that you can see all of the blood. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) So maybe you should watch cruising because that's kind of, that's kind of the movie mixed in with 1980s, like, AIDS uh, pandemic, uh, you know, New, yeah, New York, it, New York. It, yeah, scene, I probably, it, it is, I probably be, do need rough. to watch Cruising to understand this record. Then, okay, yeah, there you right, go, there you go, suicide. directly inspired. <laughs> All right, Hotel Suicide, just before fifty seconds. I like the the sometimes use of horns on this record, which is a cool, yeah. There's like sometimes horns and also sometimes dubby textures with the vocals. Hmm. Yes. That is a Fugazi guitar attack. It is a fucking Fugazi guitar attack. (laughs) It is, yeah, yeah. It's a very red medicine Fugazi guitar attack. Yeah, so I didn't think about that, but you're totally right. And also the bass lines are like 
really boing boing like springy and that's a red mm-hmm. medicine thing too yeah definitely yeah i get a little bit uh because <laughs> you're right you know i'm sure this is you know this is at the beginning of the gentrification of san francisco which i guess has been going on for a long time but uh so there is part of this like year of you know this very dismal kind of view of the world, but now yeah. in retrospect, I, I I just feel bad for them listening because it's like at this point they don't know how much worse it's going to get. Totally, yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Like it, I remember and feeling like the the Bush era was like this. How bad could it get? You know, but there's a lot yeah. of Bush era stuff on this, I think, too. Yeah, especially like nine eleven, like post 9-11 surveillance culture stuff but sort of also like tech boom like surveilling the community and like the you know trying to disappear elements that make like the new like bourgeois population uncomfortable or whatever but I don't know I've been so confused trying to figure out what this song is actually about Hmm. There's Give like, me an example. Are there there's like there's these different. Yeah, I like literally had to buy this record to get the lyrics because <laughs> for some reason no one has invented like a like an online archive of all of the liner notes and lyric sheets, which maybe is the next thing I should do. But hey, hey. I definitely felt like I couldn't understand this record without knowing what they were really saying. Um, but yeah, there's there's lyrics about like these women. We've got Gideon, Mary, Virginia. Um, I definitely don't understand what exactly it's about, but I do think there could be something to do with like single room occupancy occupancy hotels in San Francisco, hmm. which are oh, like wow. a place where like the poor have been able to live. Uh, okay despite gentrification but this is i it's like one of my favorite songs on the record and one that i do not feel that i've really totally cracked <laughs> symbolically yeah, it's interesting <laughs> i mean yeah i don't know enough about the bay area i don't think um let's hear uh this is another one this is one of my favorite songs another genius idea from our governor um yes. I think this is a great example of like a this album is full of fantastic bass lines and yes. just the way that they kind of construct very simple parts that kind of work together in a sort of clockwork motion that kind of adds up to more the, than the sum of its parts. If you just sort of like soloed all those parts. Um, yeah. I had to ban okay. myself from listening to this before bed for the last few days. That's too hyper for before bed. <laughs> never, never going to bed, but I could, I like really wanted to keep listening to it and never sleep. <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> I love that fuzz. That's the sound of the death drive of corporate capitalism. That's what it sounds <laughs> like. Ah, I don't love it anymore. so driving i love this song yeah do these lyrics uh now that you have them aaron do they have more of a pointed 
directional nature about them than uh, than the previous track? Uh, yeah. Spent $20,000 on a listening device. Know the sounds on the street really fascinate me. Aim the satellite mm. down from a penthouse bubble. Because we're afraid of being robbed or catching something. While you're too broke to not commit a crime. Your federal government knows that this is true. More prisons, more people have to die. Yeah, that's pretty good. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes they're very fucking dry. Um, When I first was listening to this, I thought they were saying morticians, more people have to die. Um, Which Mm. actually still makes sense for this with me because to me what they're talking about is the way that capitalism necessitates death for money. Uh, Whether it's via the military-industrial complex, the cancer-industrial complex, the funeral-industrial complex, prison-industrial complex. So I feel like even when I got the words wrong, I understood what they were saying, you know? You were getting it right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I used to work as a stagehand in Chicago, and I, like, worked a bunch of corporate conferences for, like, the funeral directors and like the oncologists, <laughs> and I learned a lot about how they meet to talk about making these terrible things more profitable. So that's what I Yo, connected with her on that. Yeah, it turns your stomach, don't you? Yikes. Yeah. And it w- open hey, bar, well, hopefully. that was <laughs> in like a bang, out like a flash. That was another genius idea from our governor. Uh, who who thinks we should go where next? Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. What do you want to hear? Uh, so, I mean. If, are we super limited on time? Uh, We've got a little bit we here. Got a little bit, I mean, yeah. we, we gave about a half hour to the first record. We yeah. want to give a half hour to the next yeah. if we can. Okay. Well, and these are short songs too. So, Take You is, I think, interesting and worth talking about just because I feel like so much of this record is about like the disappearance of queer space or like, I guess, like historically more like radical queer space from San Francisco, since a lot of what has displaced it is like actually bourgeois queer space too. Hmm. Um, There's a lot of nuance to that. (laughs) Well, I was like, I've done a lot of research on this. I was like looking up like lesbian hotel. What does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, Uh, and I uh, found like lists of like, what are the best hotels for lesbians in San Francisco? Because it is like, uh, it's a, it's, it's like, what's that called when something is like a priority destination or whatever? Like, it is that. Mm. And that's a part of gentrified San Francisco. Like, it is still a queer space, but it's like a bourgeois queer space. Does that make right. sense? Right. used to be for survival. used to be for adap- adaptation. Now it's for, like, tourism sightseeing. Yeah, totally. Uh, All but, right. I get the point. Yeah. But Take You is interesting because Jenny Hoyston has specifically described it as, like, a genderqueer love song. And um, so I feel like it's an interesting moment that's more just about carving out space for sex and romance outside of dominant cultural narratives. All right. Well, that's Take You by Eraserata from their uh, album Nightlife. And it's on Cross. I don't know why I'm doing the NPR thing, but this is Take You. (laughs) You're doing a great (laughs) job, NPR. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Musically, I think this is a great example of how they're, like, able to take really, like, kind of noisy, scrunky, you know, almost atonal stuff and make it 
kind of accessible and almost like poppy and catchy in a way, um, which is really I think interesting thing about how they yeah, yeah. operate as a band. I, I wanted to compare this bass line to a to a Tina Weymouth line if she Ooh, played yeah. harder, punkier stuff. Yeah, yeah she's great. definitely. Yeah, I think there was a whole great thing. Like to me, this record lives with like "Power" by Q and Not You. Like there were a lot oh, of wow. great dance punk records from the aughts that really started seeking this like sort of popular music sound within music that was actually really like underground and revolutionary and about you know like revolutionary unity kind of um and and yeah i think that they do a great job of it There's your horns again, Matt. Yeah, it's a trumpet, probably. Yeah, sounds Jenny right. Hoiston plays trumpet, according to the uh-huh. credits. I think that she played trumpet more in this band before they became a trio, too. Hmm. So that's like a sonic well, yeah. difference between this and previous records. There's not as much trumpet. And there, it's all right. All right, take you. <laughs> <laughs> um, these, uh, this is like er, their songs are like you know, or uh, Electrolane songs like five Eraserada songs. Um, <laughs> I was, I was going to say like I, I was, I was talking to Matt before we started, and I really appreciated the like. Sometimes we get albums that sound very similar on this on this show. Sometimes we get ones that are just completely different genres. These ones are close enough that I feel like they're part of the same conversation. And yet, one Electrolane's axes is. It like develops, it sort of um, use the term soars, it's about transitions, but then this record is like, okay, we're going to give you the hook in the first 15 seconds, we're going to give you the chorus in the first minute, and then the song is going to be over yeah. after another chorus. And it's just the perfect amount of yeah. like, okay, so you've yeah. had this gestation period, now you're having this really explosive, like emotional catharsis with this other album. I yeah. loved how these played off yeah, each other. I, I mean, mean we should say. probably, you know, mention the, I think what I would imagine is an influence on this band, uh, influence on many people, myself with the legendary Minutemen, uh, one of the yeah. you know, great, great kind of weird punk, funk art bands that, you know, they were known as the Minutemen for their extremely short songs. So I I'm imagine like, I, I definitely hear some Minutemen in terms of the kind of odd, angular kind of funk sort of mm-hmm. thing they have going. Um, but Absolutely. Yeah, and even yeah. with like the, like Fugazi, like, similarity that i mentioned i mean fugazi 100 percent wouldn't exist without the minutemen like ian mckay's on record in a video somewhere saying that like like mm. members of fugazi saw the minutemen live and were like we're starting a new band yeah yeah definitely. <laughs> um i i really want to hear uh wasteland i just think this is so heavy and um I just really love this. Wait, can we go? I want to talk about it too, but going back to what one of you was saying about how in and out these songs are, like how they just like show you something like really Mm -hmm. fucking intense and then it's over. Can we talk about dust really quick? Cause I feel like that personifies that quality of this record. I love this. Yeah. There was a reason I, I chose that for our sound test before we started recording right off the bat. All right, here's (laughs) dust. Blood in the face disturbs and quickly dies. 
It glides so easily. I actually do appreciate this on on the fly interpretation. <laughs> well, I feel like you know I was like getting the feeling for it without the lyrics, but I needed to like actually get them to totally get mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is like I wasn't totally sure why the song is here until you actually said that about the quality of the record. But I feel like that's kind of what they're trying to do with the record is like doing mm-hmm. the most with the moment you know yeah. I feel kind like of, I would love what's that oh sorry go ahead there's the kind of narrative oh. about like the future unfolding in the present moment you know hmm and this almost kind of proggy like breakdown thing is really yeah well and right there they just referenced the crystal mountain which I feel is like a self-referential thing that I deeply respect but don't totally understand because I'm not that familiar with At Crystal Palaces, their previous record. Oh, okay. But they say... Um... Like, they say something about... Like, they're taken from the Crystal Mountain and deposited to the plainest village in America. It seems to suggest that, you know, they're moving from this zone of, like, being more focused on something that's kind of more like dreamy or elusive to something that's more like plainly political but I don't know at Crystal Palaces so I can't say for sure that that's what's happening hmm. yeah, I don't but I feel that. like the Crystal Mountain is a reference to their previous record also um, I feel like I'd be remiss to not um, and we can go into Wasteland, which is another illustration. But uh, Bianca Sparta, the drummer, uh, man, what a monster! Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, drum, the drumming is just like relentless, and it's it, but it yeah. never really settles into like kind of what I would call like a cliche kind of rock groove. It's just yeah, yeah. it's fill to fill to fill. Yeah, it's just tremendous. Um, and Wasteland is just like maybe the most like pummeling song on the record. Um, and I think really getting pretty hard on this one. It's definitely yeah. like what? one of the biggest like anti gentrification songs on this record too. Love to hear it. Here is <laughs> Wasteland parentheses in on ellipsis and parentheses. animal bass just farting around down there. <laughs> I love that sound. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Here comes a woman or a man. I love that line. Mm. They make it very clear that we should not trust politicians regardless of their gender. Yes. <laughs> Looking at you, 2016. This makes a Racerata very different from, say, Bikini Kill, actually. In what way? I'm too stupid oh, to know. Well, they were like And they're not interested in electoral politics, like, at all. I mean, Kathleen mm. Hanna, like, Latigre made that whole, like, 
Hillary Clinton campaign song. <laughs> mm. I don't see a racerata doing anything like that. No, no. <laughs> But yeah, this song, I mean, it definitely seems to be about loss of community, increased homelessness, uh, workers being put to work, but they're building a world that's for the ruling class in San Francisco and not for themselves. The Boy, sounds like a hellish nightmare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the displacement of like historic, like queer bars and historic like artist, artist spaces. Uh, and homeless encampments and how they're, you know, getting replaced with overpriced nightclubs and high-end apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, a I, I, I covered, you know, uh, I was a video game journalist, so I was in the Bay Area a lot. And I definitely, in the times I went there, I, the city changed a lot, you know, from the early 2000s to later um, in kind of yeah. really sad ways. Um, so... I think just in the interest of time, if we want to get to some of our reader or our listener questions, um, let's. Uh, do you have time to stick around for that, Aaron? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Cool, cool. Uh, let me start by taking down my timestamp because I'm going to screw this up later if I don't actually. But uh, I should give the little preamble that we are part of the MinMax Network, a completely community-supported Patreon. Uh, they talk about video games and movies and all sorts of other crap, but they also gave us a space to make this show about music you might not have ever heard of uh, from people you might not usually get to hear it from. Um, and uh, if you want to support us and support MinMax in general, you can go to patreon.com slash MinMax. Uh, for this show specifically, it's uh, free and open to the public, but supporters get to ask questions and suggest songs like the ones you're about to hear uh, from our loyal listeners. So we're going to start with one from um, Zane Dukes, who has a bone to pick with Matt about you 2 um, Why do you not like them what? very much? What? I guess I don't, I don't, know. Did I say that? Is this because uh, you make fun? Fire? You make fun of them. I think more than you praise them. Is um, the thing. <laughs> I put it this way: I I make fun of you too, but I also kind of hope they're always around in a way. You know, like it's uh-huh. comforting. And you know, I, yeah. L- listen, I'm cynical, and then one time I got a free ticket to you too, and I had like you know three giant beers in a stadium, and I was totally in Bono's. Head. You had a religious I was in experience, his hands, you know, like everybody <laughs> else. But no, I mean, you know, they're kind of easy to, you know, the uh, Messiah kind of thing he has, but you know. I, yeah, I don't. I, uh, I think they're. You know, they've done some really good music, for sure. I know that was a question specifically for Matt, uh, Aaron, building from a previous episodes. But do you have any hot takes about YouTube before we move to our next question? The song that was, or the question that was in my email about YouTube was, if I could pull a YouTube, what would I put on everyone's phone? And I that said, is, that is Tago upcoming. Mago, yeah. Tago Mago by Can. I think that everyone would be served well by having on their phone. <laughs> you think they, you, know, you just in, inspire a new generation of yeah, acid yeah. droppers? That's a good, that's yes. a good trick. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, well, we'll move to that question next because it's very tangent. That question is from Holden Hintz, who, yeah, asks about um, the September 9th, 2014 event in which Apple dropped uh, U2's album uh, Songs of Innocence onto everybody's device. Uh, <laughs> much thought, much I uproar. I, remember, I remember this. By the way. I thought that it was, was very <laughs> funny. It was a funny troll thing. I, was, I wasn't really using Apple, like, connected Apple devices at that time, so I wasn't affected, but... I can like if you did that today, I would laugh my ass off. That is the funniest, especially yeah, since this music yeah, not everybody's yeah, gonna yeah. love. No, but um, the question, <laughs> the question as Aaron posed was, or uh, mentioned and Holden Hints posed was, um, if you could do that with one album to make everybody listen to it on their iPhone, <laughs> just at the snap of your fingers, what would you what would you choose, Matt, and why? Um, gosh, that's a tough question. Uh, 
it's oh no why am i drawing a blank uh not so deep as a well uh you can say um you know absolutely that's the right um, answer (laughs) no 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 miriam gendron uh yeah her album not so deep as a well it's uh she's a uh a a folk singer uh she's a super amazing performer and vocalist and this uh, album she did uh she basically made music and, and arrangements to set to music uh, Dorothy Parker poems. And um, it, that album is very meaningful to me. Uh, I think she's kind of, she has a new album out that was out last year. She doesn't do it work that much or tour that much, but uh, she's very uh, a special talent to me. So I, I would yeah. expose people to that. I love her. Nice. Excuse me. So um, Ben from MinMax, uh, he sometimes jumps in the com- comments section. Uh, go say hello to Ben Hansen at MinMax. He's the guy who leads this whole uh, weird ship. But he asks, what song has single-handedly done the most good for humanity? And while you're both thinking about that, I have to share my favorite answer from one of our community members who responded to that comment. Uh, PodBod <laughs> says it's Staying Alive, not just because that's a funny song title, but because it's the beat that you're supposed to use when you do CPR. It's that uh, beats per minute. Um, so <laughs> wow. a fun <laughs> A, a fun take on that, that question, a, right? Yeah, that's a genuine. That's fun clever fact. as hell. That's a fun fact. I like that. that is clever as hell. But uh, I guess by your own criteria, what song has single-handedly done the most good for humanity? Uh, we'll start with Aaron. Okay, so when I first was thinking about this, my thoughts were to do the most good. It has to be not just an incredible and powerful song, but a popular one, right? Um, hmm. So one of the first things I thought of was The Bird by Morris Day and The Time. But that feels very <laughs> specific to America. Um, at, but, you know, the idea of, like, creating a new dance craze, but, like, the subtext to the new dance craze is, like, getting everyone on the floor together beyond, like, racism and classism. Like, that to me is a very, very revolutionary song that's extremely good for humanity. But it's very, very specific to America. So what I came up with mm-hmm. next is Solidarity Forever because it's an international working class song of unity. It's been translated into many languages. Um, and yeah. Do you mind if we if we play just a few seconds of the Pete Seeger version? Is that a good version to hear? Yeah, sure. It's a great version to yeah, hear. Pete's, you know. Was this a hymn before it was this, or was it this before it, it was, was the hymn? Well, it's based on the battle hymn of the Republic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's also okay, still... Okay, yeah, that makes me sound like a fool, yeah. It's also you know, still yeah. very, very connected to American history, right? Because it's right. sung to the tune of battle hymn of the Republic, which is also the same tune as, like, John Brown's body... So it's very connected mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to protest songs of like the abolitionist movement and the Civil War era. Um, yeah, but yeah. through being like the official song of like the IWW and then eventually becoming, you know, an anthem of, I don't know, more like AFL-CIO style business unions. Uh, mm-hmm. It has like kind of traveled the whole world. It's been translated into many languages um, I feel like in order to be 
the most good for humanity. It has to travel far and wide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Beautiful. Um, uh, Matt, same question. I'll say, well, not imagine. I'll say that. Not imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I actually uh, not- thought about that song. And I, I, what's funny is that I once watched two older women fight each other over an imagined t-shirt in a thrift store, which is my <laughs> oh argument my for that not being the most. Oh. <laughs> okay, so who won? Who, who won that oh, battle? Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but yeah, <laughs> not imagine is- as a song that benefited yeah. humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I really don't like that song. Um, I, I guess I was thinking somewhat similar in sort of a, you know, sort of a group, uh, a bunch of music, you know, whether that was We Shall Overcome or a lot of black church music or, you know, a lot of soul songs like A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke or basically a lot of stuff that soundtracked uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. You know, I think there was yeah. the music was very um, integral to that movement and, you know, some Absolutely. of the songs that, that people sung together and, you know. So that's more of a, a grouping of kind of stuff, but I think there was a lot of music obviously tied to that struggle. And so if I just think about, because that was stuff that people were actually singing, you know, while mm-hmm. they were marching or, you know, while they were facing danger. So I guess I would, yeah. I would think, or even Amazing Grace or, you know, stuff like that. So um, I think that's uh, a powerful well, I do tradition. Wanna, I do want to give people a taste. You know, I would hate to listen to this and not hear it myself. So uh, I'm going to ask Matt, should we play the original Sam Cooke version? Or it looks like Greta Van Fleet did a version Jesus of Jesus Christ, song. get out of here. <laughs> I will oh quit, my God. I'll quit this podcast if we play. <laughs> this that. is very tempting. Yeah. I got to say, maybe this is the last episode that never comes out oh and you God. quit the podcast because I play that version. Okay. But no, we're going to play a little yeah. bit of A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cook, just to give you a taste. As much as I do hate yeah, to cut out that song off, as it is beautiful, song, but, but yeah. yeah, so could I. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Holden Hints. Oh, no, sorry. That was not Holden Hints' question. I got to jump back up in my document here. Um, that was Ben Hansen's. Well, screw you, Ben Hansen. Uh, send me my paycheck. Send me my contract. Don't send me anything else. Uh, <laughs> Mike Lynch. It's <laughs> really falling well, apart we, here. Last, the, last time we called it. Solidarity <laughs> Forever got you in a mood, apparently. <laughs> it's real. I'm growing a beard. This machine, machine now kills fascists is written on the side of my Yeti microphone. Uh, no, last time we called it the MinMax Content Gulag. So I think we're slowly oh, okay. building was, that yeah. uh, that relationship with Ben. All the, all the work um, we put into this. <laughs> Uh, Mike Lynch, another supporter of our uh, MinMax Patreon, uh, wants to know, what's the one live show where you felt most empathy for a performer? The example that Mike Lynch gives is that uh, that they took their daughter to see a kid's rock band that she loved. Um, above about 300 parents and children, about 200 people, 280 people didn't want to be there. And the band could tell. And yet they put on a rock and performance anyway. So in that moment, he felt a certain kinship, a certain like, hey, you've got stick with this rock band. Um 
have you been to a show that made you feel that way where it's like you're clearly playing to a tough crowd probably and uh and you're you're champs for sticking it out um, uh sorry i didn't hand off to anybody uh let's start with matt <laughs> go ahead oh okay I, I i said matt but uh yeah okay, i'll go um i guess uh uh man maybe about three three years ago i went and saw um actually a cleveland band um Cleveland, Chicago, and it was um, mm. Dave Thomas is the singer and leader. Yeah, Cleveland, the legend in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of a mountain of a man, uh, but you know, he just he looked clearly unwell, and he was sitting. You know, he had to sit on a, um, a a stool and stuff, and it was just sort of like, and you'd see him like between bands, he'd sort of just like you know sitting off in a corner, and I just there was a sense of a tremendous amount of effort that he was expending, you know what I mean? To, to perform. Mm. And so that, that kind of stuff always sort of gets me a little bit. Um, and you know, but he, he, he's saying, he's saying great, but it was just, he clearly looked like he was ailing. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, any of those empathetic moments with a, with an artist on stage? Um, well, I had a similar moment to the one that you described with Dave Thomas with ESG. I went to see them and they were just like, getting everyone dancing super hard, um, but, like, obviously very physically unwell, had a lot of medical supplies on stage to keep uh, the singer going. Um, but the the one that I actually wrote down was that I saw Waxahachie early, uh, probably her first really big gig uh, at Pitchfork <laughs> in 2013, um, and I loved her music and I was excited to see her play. Um, but it was really obvious that she felt really like scared, uh, and small, her voice kept breaking and the songs just like really didn't shine. Um, uh, but it's been like a, re- a really satisfying thing for me to watch her like grow uh, to me, I mean, I used to be a teacher, so I don't know, maybe if you're a teacher, this is just how your life is. But to me, the most satisfying thing in the world is to witness another person's growth. So putting on St. Cloud and hearing her sound so strong and so beautiful and so absolutely massive <laughs> was incredible. I haven't gotten to see any of her live shows since she put that out. But, um, you know, yeah. it's been uh. a great time for that with other artists that I've kind of been self-actualizing alongside and through their music. Like Fiona Apple is another example of that. Like a woman artist who's been important to me, who I'm like actively becoming stronger with through their music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, I may have talked about it on the podcast before, but I saw Big Thief at Pitchfork 2021 just last year, I guess. Uh, And during their song, Not, which is like a kind of a driving, uh, you know, yeah, it's a great song, but like it's very rhythmically like it's it keeps going, right? There's not much of a break in that song. Um and the tr- the drummer's kick drum, the mic or maybe the head busted and you just could not hear it. It was all snare and it was just like, man, you're having a rough go of it, but they just kept going like they he just hit it harder. <laughs> uh and that made me feel like, wow, you're what a, what a champ. Yeah. Good good job. Um the technical side of it, the the like instrument side of it is another thing where it's like, oh, there's nothing about the audience that's not into this. It's like something has failed you, you know? Um, let's see. So S. Daly wants to know, uh, do you have a song or album that always makes you think of a video game or vice versa? So um, is there, I guess, with your experience in music uh, and your erstwhile experience maybe with video games, 
did they ever overlap like synaptically? Do you ever think of one when you think of the other? Um, so for me personally, I really have only ever been passionate about like really old video games that just get harder and harder until you inevitably die. Um, that don't usually have like <laughs> pop music. They have like weird, like minimal techno or whatever, um, backgrounds. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, so yeah. I'm calling that definitely video games though. And this is gonna, uh, like give away my age a bit, but I'm still pretty young and I'm not planning on ever being ashamed of being old. So it's fine. Um, like 1998 by Rancid <laughs> or like Time Bomb by Rancid are both songs that remind me of oh, like yeah. the turn of the century, like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. I uh, yep. I think I think Hell I yeah. think there's a lot of rancid songs in skateboarding video games from the turn of the century. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. they were in that vibe for sure. For sure. Um, I remember like like hearing my brother would play that, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's this is like such a weird one, but uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which is sort of their Miami Vice, like it was set in the eighties. Uh, but they had they had this like all these different stations. So they had sort of like a new wave station, like eighties metal station, et cetera. And uh, they had this one kind of like sort of not new wave, but kind of eighties, like more romantic pop kind of stuff. Anyway, it had the song wow by Kate Bush on it. And I knew, I I knew of her, but that was sort of Mm -hmm. my first exposure. And I just became obsessed with this, like the song. Wow. And that kind of led me (laughs) down. Like that seems like such a weird context for that. I know it's very strange. It's very strange. Um, But yeah. anyway, that was kind of what led me down the path of being a, a huge fan of Kate Bush that I am, that I am now. And eventually, you know, bought records. Wow. Like yeah. But yeah. So Grand Theft Auto and Kate Bush. Like <laughs> wow, two, indeed. Uh, two peas in a pod. Yeah, we should establish someday the, uh, the, wow. the pretty direct GTA to Kate Bush pipeline. Yeah, exactly. That's we a need lot to start making that. money off of this thing. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so thank you again for that question. Your very first question unto the group S daily. Thank you so much for your time and effort. Um, and I love that question personally. I uh, got to ask this one from Jalen Brooks who asks, what's your favorite music video ever? Um, Aaron. Oh God. I made like a long list of, of I mean, not long. It's like five things long, but there's a lot. Um, I just, I mean, I'm from the eighties. I love the eighties. The eighties is the original music video era. So I feel like a lot of my favorite music videos are from the 80s. And I'm a huge fan of, like, the whole, like, weirdo, like, new wave uh, music video aesthetic, especially when it's really, like, surreal and strange. I love the video for Mm – and the song, I Can't Wait by New Shoes is, like, one of my favorites ever. Hmm. Um, But – I don't know. Also, like, more in terms of just, like, things that are perpetually, like, artsy and fascinating. Um, I love This Is The Picture, Laurie Anderson and Peter Gabriel. That's a fantastic music video hmm. uh, and song. Matt, same question to you. Um, music videos you love. If I just had one <laughs> that I love so much, uh, uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot Posse on Broadway, and it's not, like, super arty. They just, like, it's him and his crew and they're wearing like cool gold chains and they have a limo and they drive around Seattle. They get hamburgers. 
they <laughs> pick up some pretty ladies whose boyfriends <laughs> are like disrespecting them and Sir Mixlot doesn't like that. So it's just a fun, you know, it's just a fun video and I love that song and I, that kind of captured my imagination. Another one that I really love that's more obscure and I kind of like it because it's from Minneapolis, but um, uh, legendary punk band from your Husker Du did a, had a single that was make no sense at all. And then they covered Love is All Around, the Mary Tyler Moore theme song. And it's just huh. kind of like a, a goofy video of them kind of like like they're tourists in Minneapolis, just kind of like riding escalators and, you know, walking around downtown and stuff. And it's really like homemade and kind of charming. Uh, and then I'm sure it was done with like, you know, VHS cameras that somebody borrowed from a school or something. Um, yeah, so I always yeah. like that one because it's sort of a, a I should, cute little uh, uh, Minneapolis thing. Yeah, yeah, I should watch that because that describes me as as a like I don't know four years ago, yeah. a couple years after I moved here, I was still doing that thing. Like <laughs> I'm going to go to the Guthrie and and go up the longest staircase in North America or whatever it is the 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 escalator and go to the Mall of America. Even though everybody everybody who lives here hates that place. Um, I, uh, I I I I got to ask another question. Um, we got one from Brandon Floyd who says. Are there any songs or albums that you love mostly because of nostalgia? Uh, the criterion that Brandon's adding here is that maybe you wouldn't necessarily put it on a top 10 list, but you will go back and listen just to bring back some good memories. Um, Aaron, any any albums jump out to you when you think of that? Um, I feel like Midwest emo as like a whole genre is mostly just nostalgic for me now. Mm-hmm. While I grew up around I-94, I tend to hit up I-95 for emo as an adult. But mm-hmm. I would love to be driving in a car with my brother right now on the freeway in downtown Milwaukee, blasting close to home by the Get Up Kids. <laughs> Absolutely hey. would love to be doing that. Like, could I sing you a very passionate rendition of Dozen Roses by Braid right now without hesitation? Also a thousand percent. Uh, my brother used to pick me up from the Milwaukee Greyhound station or take me there when I would visit before I had a car. Mm-hmm. And he once told me that every time he dropped me off at that Greyhound, that Greyhound station, that he would play All Things Ordinary by the anniversary. So I'm like, yes, like these songs all, you know, are super nostalgic and have this deep emotional meaning for me in my life. Uh, but you know, and like, I'm a Midwest supremacist when it comes to music too. So it's actually very yeah. controversial that I'm saying wow. this, uh. Uh, <laughs> but Midwest emo for me is officially nostalgic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. You're among friends. Yeah. Uh, Matt, any, any nostalgia albums? Yeah. For you? I mean, I just think about being like, uh, a kid, like a little kid. And we used to go to this thing called, it was just called open gym at the high school. And they just opened up the gym so you could, like, I don't know, play basketball. And we kind of just ran around and just, I don't know, just ran around the school and stuff. But I just, mm-hmm. there was all this stuff, like, I come from a very small town in the Midwest, so it was just, like, it was really only metal and hard rock was, like, the only kind of music. And so I just, you know, I just remember, like, the high school kids would be listening to, like, you know, Pyromania by Def Leppard or Rat, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that, that 80s kind of, like, you know earlier hair metal uh kind of stuff or hard rock just really really yeah i just have a nostalgic it just it just reminds me of like you know people like cow like high school guys who had like camaros and stuff you know what i mean like blasting i don't know richie blackmore's rainbow or something weird like that Uh uh uh-huh that's kind of mine uh well our final question is also about concerts but it's sort of an inverse of the first one we asked where in uh 
Podbod wants to know what is the worst concert you've ever been to? Um, I know Matt uh, has been a a concert head for many years. Aaron, do you get to a whole lot of live shows? And does anyone stick out as like, man, that was shit? Uh, it's been a weird time for live shows with the pandemic. Yeah. Um, my actual last, I've just recently started going to shows more consistently again, which has been really nice. Um, and it's been nice to see the, I don't know, just like the live energy of stuff, you know, like getting to see something live and talking to the artist about it, like afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my last show, this is kind of unforgivable. My last show before we went into quarantine was uh, William Bazinski at the Empty Bottle. Um, and it was the most boring shit that I've ever encountered in my whole life. <laughs> um, the best thing that came out of seeing William Bazinski at the Empty Bottle was uh, a great and absolutely fantastic joke that I wrote. Um, which, which really, you know, like ups the, ups the stagehands in the whole, the mm-hmm. whole concert enterprise. But, uh, when William Bazinski first came out onto the stage at that show, he would like, like was acting super weird. And he like kept saying like, Oh, like the legendary empty bottle. Hello, hello, or whatever. And then he like for, it felt like five minutes. He was like, okay, well. Where's my fog? <laughs> I can't start without yeah. my fog. <laughs> um, there's supposed to be fog. <laughs> um, wow. And so I wrote this joke that was kind of about how, like, uh, did you hear, what is it? It's like, did you hear, you know, what happened to William Bazinski? And then the punchline is like, uh, the stagehand forgot to turn on the fog machine and his art was exposed as artifice or whatever <laughs> wow get his uh, ass yeah that was like <laughs> i like i actually like there was like a wire cover that had william Bazinski on it and that's where i kind of like made the joke and like published it as an image i think like the punchline comes from like the chest hair coming out of his shirt on the wire cover <laughs> uh-huh. um but the opener, like the local Chicago opener was Matches, and like <laughs> she was fucking incredible. I wanted to ask them, like, can you just give my $10 to her, you know? Um, but like, <laughs> as far as like putting in, putting in a lot of work and like, like a traveling really far for a show, the Bikini Kill reunion show was like probably <laughs> the worst oh, really? uh, as far as like how expensive it was how far i traveled to get there um and the only good Bummer. thing that came out of it was that i wrote a very important critical essay about the experience Intra- i'll have to read that. there you go <laughs> that's a bummer what Gotta about get content you? out of it somehow um, I, mine is definitely uh mine's one of the low points of my life actually um so this is a show that we played it was pitched to us this is the year carrie lost to bush and a local labor union, a woman from a, a local labor union yeah. was like, we're going to play, we're going to have this, um, you know, kind of turn out to vote show at the Triple Rock Social Club. And it's basically like, if you have your I Voted sticker, you get it for free. And it's just, you know, to kind of encourage turnout. And the bill was pitched to me as the Soviets, who were really a big punk band at that time. Brother Ali, who was like a, a big rapper. And it was an mm-hmm. amazing bill. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the interim, the woman moved to Chicago and just dropped the whole thing. So the bill ended up being my band maps Norway, this other band I can't even remember. I'd never heard of. And then this sort of like hippie kind of like jazz fusion band called Electropolis. 
And so like <laughs> we, we, we get there and there's like literally nobody there. And so the manager comes over. He's like, ah, do you guys want to do this or should we just call it off? And I'm like, well, you know, we got our stuff set up. Why don't we'll just blaze through like five songs, you know, 15 minutes and be done. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to just tell people from the bar side if they want to come over, it's fine, even if they didn't vote. And so then <laughs> we like we get done and then Electropolis sets up. And by this point, the drummer and I have like retreated to the bar in the back of the music room. And they're just playing this like ponderous, like jazz fusion stuff for goes on forever. So it's like me and Jeff, my drummer at the back bar. And now it's oh, we're watching the election on TV. So we're getting more drunk and remote, like morose because it's clear Carrie's going to lose and this band goes on and on for like over an hour uh-huh. and it's us at the back bar getting drunk and sad and like literally one person in a folding chair in the middle of the floor looking at them and it, it went on for like over an hour and i just was sitting there like why am i why why do i do this like why am i in a band <laughs> what, what you know what i mean it was just so ponderous and like and then they asked the, after that the, they asked the sound guy if they could play a second set and he was like Oh he's God! Like, he, I was I was talking to him. He's like, "Get the, get your <laughs> shit and get the fuck out of here right now." So, but yeah, and then of course, and in, in like Bush beat Carrie that night. So it's just like, you know, sometimes you have those gigs where you're just like, "What? What's the point of this?" You know, so, just cursed. Yeah, so yeah, they were really bad too. So anyway, that's my my worst well, show memory ever. That is pretty fucking bad. I think the worst band I've ever been to was just an opener that didn't sound great. But wow. man, that's rough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is rough well thank you for sharing the story there uh that that one comes from Podbot about the worst concert you've ever been to uh, another thing that we have here on crossfade a little tradition is to so, so excuse me solicit songs from the community uh and then play them as our outro um this week's is also from brandon floyd who asked about the nostalgia albums uh question and his song is everything to nothing by manchester orchestra from their 2009 record mean everything to nothing uh, this is a group that I listened to quite a bit in 2009-ish and then didn't start listening to again until about 2017-ish. Um, they didn't really lose a beat in the in the interim. Um, they have... I, I like the music. I don't know what sort of standing they have in the in the world these days, uh, but I, I quite enjoy it. Um, did you guys get to listen to Everything to Nothing uh, by Manchester Orchestra? I, I know a little bit of their newer stuff I've heard. I think they're pretty big now and... It just I was just surprised it sounded different than what I remember hearing like much le- much more like kind of direct and not as I mean they almost have yeah, sort yeah. of a pink floydy kind of thing going on now or something which even more so yeah I just caught them at first Ave a few weeks ago and they uh they really again they haven't missed a beat they're still hitting everything just right they're a little more dialed in than I would kind of like to he- to hear uh just because I think the sort of like a little bit off the rails punkiness would be a really good vibe for them but uh cannot blame them for being consummate musicians um I know you were asking about this one in particular, Aaron. Did you get a chance to listen to this? I actually didn't. I know that my brother is really into them. He's way more into like like Brand New and Kevin Devine mm-hmm. and that whole scene of stuff. I don't really know that much about this whole scene of That's music. That's fair. Well, uh, you've got a Spotify link, so maybe this is the beginning of something beautiful. Uh, or at least another point for you and your brother to connect over yeah. music. <laughs> or something that you'll end up hating and your brother and you can really combat it over for the next 30 years. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you. Your, your life is yours to live, Aaron. Um, but, uh, I will, I will sign off by saying that that is the song that we will play over our outro. Um, thank you very much for, uh, sitting with us through this final episode, excuse me, final section of our podcast, Aaron. Um, thank you very much to everybody who listened, uh, sub- submitted questions and, and song suggestions for our podcast. 
Uh, thank you again for supporting us on Patreon. Um, Matt, give us that out. Yeah. Uh, we, as always, we thank everyone that supports and listens. Aaron, it was a great conversation. And, and again, thank you for the, the pick. Uh, I'm going to definitely be diving into Electra Lane. Um, and, Same. And uh, don't forget to check Aaron's uh, current projects out on Come Away with EMD.com. Uh, and then you can, you know, she has a seasonal mixtape stuff up there and links to her writing. So we encourage you to check that out. Some great stuff. So uh, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Have a good week and uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime. I hope so. No.